Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And we are going to finish the second half of the Steps booklet read-through. But before we do, just a few points of review. We're talking about three basic brain sections. We have the lowest part of the brain where we find the freeze state or the depressive state. We have the middle section where we see the anxiety or anger state, fight or flight. And in the upper part of the brain, that's where we have our calm, our logic, our relationship building. And the state that we find ourselves depends on the aggregate of our stress. This includes our daily stress, what happened today, our systemic stress, like what are the kind of things going on around us in our work, school, families, things like that, and our traumatic stress. How many of our stressors have gone unprocessed, right? How many are stored inside our brain and body? So the total of those things will determine where we happen to be at. If we are at the edge of our capacity and we start to get that on-edge feeling, that is the fight-or-flight state. When we are overwhelmed or perceive our stressors as inescapable, it induces the shutdown, the literal depression of bodily and brain functions. Uh, This also happens to occur when our attempts to express fight-or-flight emotions, sadness, anger, anxiety, if those expressions are punished or invalidated, that will induce the depressive function. Knowing the functions of these states help us know how to create environments for those that are in them. Freeze state requires space, either physical or emotional, right? This organism is overwhelmed and it needs to know that it's not going to die, and we do that by giving appropriate space. In fight or flight, the defensive functions need to be expressed without getting punished, right? They exist to probe the environment for danger, and if they get invalidated or punished, that perpetuates the anxious state or sends the organism back into freeze. And so when we allow those emotional expressions to occur while holding our boundaries, of course, then people can enter logical states where they can start to formulate their own solutions, right? Their own logic. Very, very seldom do we actually need to intervene as much as we think we do. Boundaries. We always have to be holding boundaries while we are trying to help people therapeutically. We need to keep ourselves safe and sane uh, by taking actions to protect our own health. Boundaries are not things that we want others to do or expect them to do. And lastly, we need to be aware of our own brain states to be empathetic and to use our therapeutic skills. All right, I think that's all the review, so let's get right to it. The complete model. The complete steps model includes a few more instructions for responding to someone in the lower brain section. These are especially useful for adults with more severe emotional disorders or for most toddlers and teens. Again, you can find the link in the description of the blog. This diagram includes 10 steps and is color-coded. It includes lots of exa- like specific examples, the script as it were, as well as a review of those principles on it. But remember, the principles are most important, not necessarily the script. Okay, you still have to determine where you think this person is at and what response would be appropriate to that brain state. But the principles will help guide you. So, In this model, we see the below freezing area. 
When someone has demonstrated that they want space, either physical, by leaving the room or asking you to leave, or verbal, saying they don't want to talk about it, ignoring or ghosting, then do what you reasonably can to give them that space. Then check in again. Don't just ignore this person. Okay, uh, people get confused that giving space means to just stay away from them. No, it means to allow them the space that they are asking for and continually checking to make sure that is what they're asking for. If the person feels that you respected their space when they asked for it, they will feel safer with you the next time. This may lead them lead to them talking about their feelings or to the next level of freeze, as seen in the diagram. A less intense scenario might look like this. Friend one, how are you feeling? Friend two, I'm not ready to talk. Maybe let's watch the show first. Friend one, got it. This person was just one step below fight or flight, where the emotions can come out. A more extreme scenario might be an adult child that has ignored his father's phone calls and invitations for years, but quietly appreciates that dad keeps reaching out. He eventually feels safe enough to accept an invitation and make peace with dad, who hopefully listens, validates, and apologizes if appropriate. Somewhere in the middle might be you with your teenager. You check in 10 times, respect her space when she indicates, and on the 11th time, she tells you how mad she is at you. Progress! But if you check in on the ninth time, she ignores you, and you make a passive-aggressive remark or give her a suggestion, then you increase the time it will take for her to feel safe with you. It's like you, you backtrack a little bit. This process takes a bit of faith and patience, but I promise it will make things easier for you and or the person you are helping, or at least not make things worse. It's at least worth a good faith effort if what you've been doing has not been working. The next step, the silent presence. This step should be considered when working with young children or adults with attachment trauma. Leaving the room would be giving appropriate, inappropriate space with a small child or an adult with attachment trauma, but they don't want you too close either, and they don't want you to say anything. You can think of this like training a wild horse, where you steadily and silently approach without any sudden movements. The emotions are just below the surface, maybe about to explode out, but you stay calm and show that you are not a threat, ready for anything. Next step up, engaged silence. This step takes a bit more involvement, but still carefully limiting external stimulation while still showing safety. This is where a gentle touch on the shoulder, foot or back rub, or a hug might be appropriate. Short, soft statements like, I hear you, I know, I'm sorry, indicate that you are meeting this person where they're at. They may be expressing emotion non-verbally, such as with heavy crying or breathing, or saying a few non-logical statements, Remember, don't challenge this. Don't inject your perspective or your logic here because this part of the brain cannot take that. It feels offended by that. Just let the emotions flow out and this person will steadily increase in the amount of logic that they have access to. This next part, we're going to discuss some of the specifics of boundaries. At the very top of the complete model is boundaries. In effective therapy, we follow the OSC oxygen mask principle. We make sure we're safe before we can help others be safe. As a therapist, it is imperative I take proper care of myself or else I either waste people's time or worse, cause trauma to them as a caregiver in a triggered emotional state. This principle applies to parents, partners, friends, and any other relationship. Helping yourself first is helping others, not only because it keeps you healthy enough to be helpful, but it also increases the chances that others will heal and grow. Uh, for example, when you said 
healthy boundaries with someone, it gives them the opportunity to solve their own problems. Whereas if we are trying to fix it all the time, this person does not get that opportunity and they stay helpless. Setting effective boundaries requires that you have a decent sense of internal damage control. You know what emotions, thoughts, and pains you're having, and you recognize what states render you ineffective as a helper. If you cannot recognize when you are feeling defensive, angry, anxious, overwhelmed, or when there's a threat of physical harm, you must do that work with yourself first to determine those states. The primary purpose of boundaries is to keep you from entering these states as they make you a threat to others' healing, or at least render you ineffective as a caregiver, needing to be cared for yourself. Setting boundaries also requires that you have the capacity to follow through with those boundaries. In my experience, if boundaries are well thought out, the difficulty in enforcing them stems from a fear of the potential consequences of enforcement. For example, you may want to protect yourself from injurious statements from a romantic partner in their fight-or-flight state. You set the boundary of leaving the room if emotions are expressed using verbal violence and your partner threatens to leave the relationship. If you walk out on me, we're done! This is manipulation and plays on your intense fear of being alone. You can't set a reasonable boundary of not subjecting yourself to abuse because the alternative actually feels worse. It feels scarier. You would have to work on this fear of loneliness before you could be expected to follow through on this boundary, which would be healthy for you and your partner. Another example frequently occurs with parents who are afraid of hurting their children's feelings. You turn off the TV because the hour is up, and your toddler proceeds to cry and tell you how unfair you are and how you don't love her. You can't stand to see your child like this, so you let her watch TV until she falls asleep. This lack of boundary teaches the child that tantrums get her what she wants and also keeps her from learning to sit with strong emotions, right? Your inability to handle those strong emotions keeps her from learning to handle them. You might feel that if your child is upset, you're a bad parent. Since people are not responsible for the feelings or outcomes are, or of others, this is a response that may take some rewiring before you can be expected to consistently set healthy boundaries with your child. See the article, Did I Cause Your Feelings? And the other one, Did I Cause Your Outcomes? The last kind of fear of enforcing boundaries is that of the truth. I often say that boundaries give an eye of truth. They reveal a person's true emotional state. If setting a reasonable boundary would produce suicidal or violent behavior in an individual, it means they are actually in a critical state requiring intensive care or containment. You might not have the resources to provide it. For example, if your daughter grabs a knife to start cutting herself because you won't give her the car keys to see her boyfriend, she is probably not mentally well enough to be at your house. She may need hospitalization. Appeasement of the emotion may prevent... Such a measure, it might keep her from cutting herself if you give her the car keys, but it doesn't help your daughter get any better. You must be ready to accept what the eye of truth reveals. If not, again, that is work you'll have to do for yourself before you can be effective help for someone else. But sometimes the truth revelation is encouraging, revealing a healthier state than you realized. For example, your teenager is acting sluggish and downcast, saying he is not in a good place to go to school today. You don't know if he's actually depressed and should stay home from school. Being in freeze brain is a valid reason to not waste time spacing out or sleeping at school, which most depressed teenagers do. Or if he's pulling a fast one to get out of PE today. Either way, the boundary is the same. No phone or TV if you stay home from school. If he is depressed, he should actually rest. Refrain from numbing activities like social media, video games, or show binging and start his healing. If he is just feeling lazy, 
then boredom at home might be less desirable than getting sweaty in PE, which is also a fear that you should explore and validate anyway. But the boundary works to the greater good either way, and having the boundary do the talking will be much more effective in motivating productive behavior than you giving a judgmental lecture about the importance of school attendance, which adds shame and increases mental illness. So the boundary, whether or not this person is like faking this emotion, is still effective because it keeps them from getting a reward for faking it while also giving them the opportunity to heal if they need it. Again, depression requires rest. Going to school in a depressed state does nothing for somebody's mental health. It only, it typically makes it worse. Boundaries can exist at every step. They exist whether the person is calm, angry, or shut down. They can exist even if you haven't told the person beforehand. For example, you don't have to have told your boyfriend that you'll leave him if he hits you again. Having a formal system of of written boundaries can be diplomatic, but the underlying principle must be that they exist to keep you safe. They are not black and white, and you are in charge of interpretation and execution. You can be flexible with boundaries, determining what will actually be useful and what actually won't be. Others are not responsible for not broaching your boundaries. They are only responsible for themselves. So if you find or you feel that other people are violating your boundaries all the time, what that means is you don't actually have a boundary. You are expecting other people to do something, but you are not actually doing something. An effective boundary is is a wall, right? It is an action that you take. So um, repeated violations of boundaries are just repeated failures for you to enforce your own protection. Because... Reminders of boundaries are a form of teaching and enforcement is a kind of challenge. Boundaries are best received when someone is as close to the top of the brain as possible. For example, when your daughter takes the car keys without permission, gets a speeding ticket, and comes home sobbing, take her through the steps. Listen, validate her sadness, ask about her ideas, Then determine whether you drop the reminder on her that she loses driving privileges. Chances are she already knows the boundary and will talk about how ashamed she feels that she broke the rule. If she feels safe to express these feelings, she will be much more likely to learn from this mistake. If you sternly remind her of what she loses before she feels understood, you hurt the relationship and she is more likely to engage in rebellious behaviors in the future. So go up the steps and this person will learn from the mistake. But if you feel the need to just remind of the boundary and enforce it then and there before you listen to the story, you make it more likely for this person to cope in dangerous ways. People tend to think that if someone is breaking a rule, that they must not know the consequence. So they need frequent reminders. This is generally not true. If someone breaks a rule once and the consequence is motivating for them or for the state of the brain that they're in, they will likely remember it. If they are repeat offenders, then they are highly aware of the boundary. People don't break reasonable rules while in a calm, logical state, except in certain disorders like narcissism, narcissism, which we'll discuss later, but during fits of strong emotion where they don't have access to good reasoning. People know the rule. It just isn't motivating in a strong emotional state. Remember that those lower parts of the brain have the motivation of survival, of feeling okay, of feeling good enough, which means that like logical rules, moral rules, don't really have bearing on the motivation of those parts of the brain. So that's why people will like 
break lots of rules to get their drug of choice because the part of the brain they're in requires feeling good and prioritizes that above anything else. And if somebody is in that desperate of a state where they'll break lots of rules to acquire their drug, chances are they're trying to ward off something like panic attacks or suicidal ideation, which makes sense. Shaming or judging. Try to make boundaries match the behavior they are protecting against. For example, driving privileges retracted for driving infractions. This will make them more likely to protect you and produce a change of behavior. One kind of boundary that is never appropriate with someone you love is the retraction of love or attention, such as attacking language or a cold shoulder. There are behaviors to make someone less worthy of driving privileges, but no behavior that makes someone less worthy of love. If a behavior is hurting you or causing you stress, you have every right to keep yourself safe. But aggressive behavior or messages only hurt everyone without producing meaningful changes in behavior, often typically causing negative changes in behavior. Shaming or judging are not appropriate consequences for people you love. Anything that tells a person that they are bad, selfish, ungrateful, immoral, lazy, stupid, or unlovable because of their behavior is shaming. Obviously, physical violence is the most direct form of shaving. It shows someone they deserve to be hurt. This kind of message may produce short-term behavior changes, but only because the person is afraid of shame or pain, not because they care about the benefits of behavior change. This motivation drives mental illness. See the article, Why is it shame? Anytime you make a determination about someone's intentions or their character, you judge them. Statements like these are judgmental. They only cause harm. For example, he just doesn't care. She just wants to cause trouble. That's just how they are. If you're not willing to put in the work, you should really be more grateful. Statements about what people want, care about, or are willing to do are judgments of their internal experience. These are inappropriate because we will never have enough information to judge exactly what is happening inside someone else and thus determine their capacity or intentions. Even if people tell you things like, I'm just bad or lazy or I just don't care or that's just how I am, this is not a good indicator of what's actually going on inside them and not sufficient information to judge or shame them. If anything, hearing such statements lets us know that people are judging themselves harshly and a change in their behavior is most likely to come when we challenge that shaming message with loving treatment rather than endorsing it. But people ask, aren't there some kinds of judgments we need to make? And the answer is yes. You must judge what you will do and what is best for you. You may judge what you believe about healthy human behavior, but that is different than attributing others' behaviors to motives. For example, instead of thinking, he drinks excessive alcohol because he's lazy and doesn't care about his effect on other people, you would think, he drinks a lot, for reasons I don't really understand. I believe people should abstain or drink conservatively to preserve their health. I'll go home early if a situation looks dangerous to me. You must determine what boundaries you have for yourself, but you cannot judge the internal experience of another person any more than you would want people to judge yours. Even if you aren't speaking or th thinking in judgmental terms, there are subtle ways to make people feel judged. One of the most common is expressing frustration with someone when they're already feeling threatened. I just don't see why this is a big deal. I don't get why you just can't... Dot, dot, dot. If you had just done this, we wouldn't be in this situation. 
the lower brain interprets things as either safe or unsafe. If we had to pick a category for these statements, they would likely be unsafe for someone already feeling sad, angry, or anxious. Another common way to convey judgment is to give positive feedback about a particular quality at the wrong time. Praise is expressing your perspective. It is a form of teaching, right? One of those higher brain interactions. When someone is already feeling calm and logical, praise feels good. When they're feeling insecure, praise feels like conditional love. For example, they might be thinking, this statement feels unsafe because it shows that you show love more or less when I act or look a certain way. When someone is frozen and depressed, praise feels empty or insincere. Lastly, a request or expectation expressed to someone in a threatened state makes them feel like you don't care about their feelings and are thus judging them as being unreasonable, lazy, or inconsiderate. For example, your teenager is lying awake in bed after school has already started, and you say, well, are you going to get up? If your teen is feeling frozen or anxious, this is interpreted as, I'm assuming you are able to go to school and be productive, but you are deliberately not doing it because you are lazy. Your teen will likely feel judged and will likely sink deeper into depression or try to fight you. It is possible to set boundaries in this situation and help your teen through their emotions without conveying judgment. Getting better. Being therapeutic is really hard and counterintuitive. Improving one's therapeutic skills doesn't just come with knowledge, but with exercise and reflection. As a therapist, I improve most when I take time to reflect on my interactions, specifically watching video of my sessions. It is by reflecting that I can see things I missed in the moment. I can recall tools that would have been more useful, things I can do differently the next time around, and things I might need to apologize for. But most importantly, I can recognize my own emotional states. I can determine where my own emotions kept me from being my most helpful self, and thus create strategies to cope or identify my own baggage to work through. Review your interactions often, hopefully with someone else. If you did your best and things didn't go well, no one is to blame. We're just missing some information. Keep reviewing, talk it over, and maybe consult a professional, and you'll make progress. Family therapy often looks like a skills course, followed by check-ins, troubleshooting, and emotional processing for parents. These regular reviews help progress continue and help us identify blind spots. Sometimes the process is quick. Parents are in a good place to learn some simple changes in their approach that can bring quick results. But sometimes things are slow. We discover that parents get tr triggered by their child's feelings and behaviors in a way that prevents healing interactions. It may take a long time for these parents to process their own trauma before they can effectively help their child work through theirs. Whatever the case, we're in this together. There's no shame in having a hard time. There's no shame in repeatedly making mistakes. There's no shame in always having something to improve on because there always will be something. Keep working, keep learning, keep reflecting, take breaks, and let yourself be an imperfect human. We're always working up steps in some way or another. So here we are at the end of the booklet, and it looks like we do have some time to review the complex conditions. So, considerations for more complex conditions. The STEPS model provides enough knowledge to significantly improve your chances of successful interactions with the great majority of people, those without diagnosable illnesses and a typical range of emotions, and those with mild to moderate anxiety and depression. The model also gives the principles to interact successfully with those with more complex conditions, such as personality disorders like narcissism, antisocial, borderline, paranoia, 
um, or OCD, bipolar, schizophrenia, addiction, and eating disorders. However, in these cases, the principles must be applied more carefully in their entirety and reviewed frequently. This basically means we need to hold our boundaries extra hard while maintaining the principles of you know, listening and validation and matching brain states. Once we understand basic brain development, typical anxiety and depression become much more simple to understand and develop empathy for. However, more complex diagnoses require a little more knowledge of brain function and adaptations, but the key principle is that even these conditions are adaptations to circumstances. They make sense if you gather enough data. Thus, even these people deserve compassion and freedom from judgment. For example, Someone with borderline personality disorder may become sexually promiscuous, engaging in dangerous sexual encounters even while in a relationship with a healthy and loving partner. They may verbally abuse their partner one day, then plead for forgiveness and shower them with affection the next day. This flip-flop behavior makes sense given the childhood experience most of these people had, which looked like dependence on a caregiver that showed affection but also caused intense pain, someone with inconsistent emotional availability, often having a personality disorder themselves. Studies have shown that you can induce borderline symptoms in puppies by fostering dependence on an abusive caregiver. Someone with OCD develops compulsive behaviors distantly related to an original source of anxiety. For example, a person may use compulsive hand washing to reduce an anxiety about germs. But further exploration may actually show that the aversion to germs is a fear of getting sick, which is due to a fear of dying, which is tied to a fear of inducing sadness for the family, which would make this person a burden. The real fear is of being a burden, and it's so intense due to excruciating pain of feeling like an inconvenience to the family due to real experiences in the past. For example, I've seen cancer patients who are not germophobic because they're afraid of dying because they're but because they're afraid of being a burden to their family. Though the person with OCD may not have consciously made those connections themselves, their brain has already created an adaptation that keeps the full force of the anxiety at a distance. Parts of addictions are somewhat easier to understand. Most people know that just trying an addictive substance has a direct rewiring effect on the brain. But most people don't realize why someone tried it a substance or addictive behavior to begin with, or why they don't try harder to quit. Addictions correlate highly with other mental illnesses, not just because mental illness symptoms cause distress, but because the addiction treats the symptoms temporarily, often more effectively than prescribed medication. Some symptoms, such as panic attacks or suicidal ideation, are understandably treated with an addictive substance. We must recognize that withdrawal doesn't just cause physical pain, it opens the gates for all the emotional pain the person is coping with that comes flooding in, often causing suicidal thoughts, panic, or psychosis. The addiction makes sense. I won't suggest underlying sources of all the complex disorders, but the point is that they all come from somewhere and make sense in context. Recognizing potential sources can help us validate feelings while setting effective boundaries as we seek to help people with these conditions. The split brain diagram. I use the split brain diagram to help illustrate effective interactions for these cases, which includes the additional component of dissociation, represented by the dividing line going through dividing the front and the back half of the brain in this diagram. 
Dissociation is a highly complex brain adaptation connected to the freeze function, but which allows for many different functions beyond freezing. Instead of just numbing the feelings, dissociation can warp one's sense of reality through derealization or schizophrenic symptoms, create an out-of-body feeling, which we call depersonalization, eliminate empathy to promote individual survival, as we see in narcissism and antisocial personality disorder, it can eliminate inhibitions, as we see in borderline or bipolar mania. It can create a false, scary reality to induce hyper-secure behaviors, as in schizoid personality or paranoid personality, and, and many other functions. Overall, the point is to disconnect a person from reality because being present in reality with the physical or emotional pain is unbearable. Sufficient time in these states creates delusions, which are more than just irrational thoughts, but intense irrational beliefs. Interestingly enough, the interaction sequence with these brain parts is the same as in the more common emotional states, just in the opposite direction. You can imagine a mirrored set of stairs on the other side of the brain, showing that you pretty much do the same thing as this person you know, moves through the different levels of their brain. So um, I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit more detail here. Keep in mind that with this particular diagram, the labels are less reflective of actual localized brain activity. Narcissism is not actually manifested in the upper left quadrant in a brain scan. Dissociation doesn't just live in the back half of the brain. This diagram simply demonstrates the functions indicative of disorders. Paranoia characterized by dissociated anxiety, borderline can be highly logical, but is quicker to enter dissociated fight or flight or freeze than is narcissism, which tends to involve more logic. Uh, of course, this makes sense if you're, if you're looking at the diagram. So we're looking at the three different levels of the dissociated side of the brain. So I'm calling them dissociated logic, dissociated fight or flight, or dissociated freeze, which means these same states, but dis more disconnected from reality. Okay. So the upper level, dissociated logic. In dissociated states with high logic, intelligence is used for survival functions. The survival goal for someone with antisocial personality is to be the last one standing. Life is meaningless and expendable. I must kill or be killed. You might recognize this disorder in the worst supervillains, like the Joker or Moriarty from Sherlock, but also in mass shooters, rapists, and sex traffickers. Just like in the movies, you either outsmart and neutralize these folks, or just keep yourself safe. Leave it to the authorities to try treating these people, usually under high security settings. The goal of the narcissist is to be in control or on top. If you're not first, you're last. Logic is used to manipulate, coerce, deceive, gaslight, and cheat. You'll see this tendency in many politicians, especially dictators, CEOs, performers, performers, and other high-powered public figures who sought out these positions for a reason. When you perceive life to be a food chain, the only way to feel safe is to be at the top. But even then, you feel you must always defend your position. Narcissists are somewhat more treatable, but they still must be compelled by strong boundaries such as court-ordered therapy, prison time, or threat of homelessness. Even then, some narcissists would prefer feeling like top dog in their own heads on the streets to being ranked lower in a place of healthy social functioning. If boundaries compel a narcissist to interact with you, then you use logic without attacks if they are presenting in logic. Um, a disagreement with a narcissist or holding a boundary with a narcissist often sends them into a fight state. 
In this state, you continue valid listening and validating feelings, but without getting sucked into the faulty logic or into an argument. This is very difficult, even for the best therapists. If you're still in a place to interact, you might expect this person to enter freeze. Okay, this means you're still holding your hard boundaries while validating this person's feelings as they express you know, this dissociated anxiety or anger. If this goes on, they will enter freeze. Give physical or emotional space and see if they enter an emotional state more connected with reality, a regular anxious or anger state, or slip back into dissociated fight state. Either way, you must maintain your grip on reality and your boundaries while refraining from attacks. Regular contact with narcissistic personalities requires even more contact with people connected with reality. Those with personality disorders tend to infect those around them with mental illness. Mid-level or dissociated emotions. Dissociated strong emotions exist to protect people from extreme threats that were likely real at some point, but not anymore. The emotions tend to spur behaviors that perpetuate the threats. We might put paranoid and borderline personalities in this category. For example, Shoichi Yokoi, a Japanese soldier, hid in a cave in Guam for 28 years after World War II ended, believing the war was still going on. There was an actual threat, but isolation from society kept Yokoi from integrating new information, creating paranoia. One could help in this state by validating his feelings without logical argument or expressing agreement with the false reality. Eventually, the paranoia would would diminish. The person would release their fear response, perhaps enter a depressive state when they recognize that the fear that controlled them is unjustified, then steadily enter an anxious reality where they must relearn how to interact with the world. Borderline personalities, probably the most common kind of personality disorder, have strong emotions that often evolve due to fear of abandonment. You'll find that most with this diagnosis have extensive histories of abuse and neglect. In order to avoid the pain of abandonment, they cling to people and express deep adoration, blow up and cut off relationships at the first sign of trouble, or manipulate people into staying with them. Though the original threat likely no longer exists, they act as if it did, which often leads to new experiences of abandonment, strengthening their perception that people are generally unsafe. As with narcissists, those with borderline enter fight or flight, or fawn, um, if you've heard that term before, when they are hit with reality, such as someone else's feelings or a boundary. They may do almost anything to make you abandon them or make you stay, just to keep just keep to the game plan. Validate feelings without argument or agreement with false ideas while maintaining your boundaries. This won't make them feel better. It will induce an internal crisis that will be necessary for this person's healing. They might stick around for you to help them through it, or they might find someone else that won't challenge their false reality. Your responsibility is to stay true to yourself and keep yourself safe. You are under no obligation to be abused to give someone else the chance to heal, which they must still choose to take. Lower level, dissociated freeze. In depression, it is common to feel tired, apathetic, and numb. Dissociated freeze takes this a bit further in disconnecting people from reality. These symptoms include depersonalization, which is the feeling of being out of one's body, losing sensation, perhaps observing yourself from out of your body. Derealization, or the feeling that you and the things around you are not real. Catatonia, which is being completely numb, unable to think, unable to process any sort of stimulus hallucinations or delusions, which are, of course, false perceptions, depressive psychosis, there is fainting, and suicidality. 
one should not try to reason with someone in these states or try to get them to express feelings that can be validated. They either need physical or emotional space. It may be appropriate to use physical stimuli like foot or back rubs, Play-Doh, gentle sensations on the hands, or other means to bring sensation back to the body. The goal in these states is to bring the person back to reality, often to a regular depressive state from which we can work back up the steps. But again, we don't convince them to get there. We just literally help the body come back into feeling. These conditions are considered complex for a reason, and I would not expect most people to be able to effectively treat them, but this information may at least help reduce harm until the affected person can gain access to more intensive care. Though this booklet provides basic information on the treatment of mental illness, it is always appropriate to seek professional help. Please read the post on covert depression and other diagnosable illnesses. In these kinds of cases, the steps still apply, but also require more concentrated efforts as they do with the personality disorders and other complex conditions. I refrain from commenting extensively on developmental or genetic conditions such as autism or Down syndrome here. However, the principles are still the same. Identify the basic brain state, freeze, fight or flight, or logic and learning and interact accordingly. These conditions may require spending much more time giving appropriate space, listening, and validating, and much less time trying to use logic, but the use of appropriate boundaries is just as important. I may create a separate guide on these conditions at a later time. So this is the end of the booklet, and if you made it this far without falling asleep or turning it off, I appreciate your time um, and would love to hear hear from you like any comments questions um, challenges to the material presented here um, lastly i just wanted to attribute um, you know give proper credit to some of the inspirations um, in in creating or putting this model together um, the concept of interaction sequencing is not new some of this information might seem familiar what i've done is synthesize a number of similar models that felt incomplete to me or felt you know not quite practical these are just a few sources of inspiration the ors model as seen in motivational interviewing the peace pyramid from the arbinger institute the hand model of the brain from dan siegel and the neurosequential model from bruce perry thank you so much and hopefully you'll stick around for further podcast episodes in the future thanks